Welcome to the first ever Living Cities podcast, brought to you by the Naomi Milgram Foundation. I'm Andrew McKenzie. And I'm Matt Ward. Contemporary cities seem to many of us as places of freedom and opportunity. And we think of the buildings and architecture that surrounds us as somehow reflecting that promise, imbued with values and qualities that we respect. That's the theory, yet it's only ever half the story. Every city has its invisible past and its forgotten people, sometimes living amongst us right now. This episode of Living Cities explores these forgotten histories and people. Architecture invariably reflects the culture, values, and character of those in power. Post-colonial cities in particular celebrate the endeavours of the colonisers, typically at the expense of those who've been dispossessed. Despite some efforts to reconcile this troubled history, our cities and buildings remain stubbornly oblivious to their pre-colonial history. We don't know, we were not taught during our schooling years a lot about the history of our country. Most of, at least in my experience, the learnings that I've had when I was at school um, very much started in 1788 with Captain Cook. That's Sarah Lynn Reese. We'll be talking to her a little bit later. Andrew, in 2019, you chaired a panel with Mabel O. Wilson at the Living Cities Forum. Mabel's a New York-based designer and a cultural historian and her work examines the impact of social inequalities on architecture. At that time in America, there was a lot of debate about Confederate monuments still sitting proudly in public places all over the South. More recently, we've seen the Black Lives Matter protests, and that division, if anything, seems to have become even more pronounced. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we've all seen images on TV and on social media. And, you know, if you look at a map of America at the moment of where there is protest, it's absolutely peppered. And much of the news reporting focuses almost entirely on police brutality. Uh, And obviously that's important, but there does seem to be origins to this that lie much deeper, you know, right back to the historic injustices of slavery and America's early years I asked Mabel if there's a growing recognition of that dark past and its ongoing legacy. On one hand, you know, there's been some amazing scholarship, but also just kind of bottom-up understanding, like people just saying, you know, like roots, I want to know my roots, where do I come from? Um, people recognizing, oh, oh, wait, you know, there was, you know, there were slave owners in my family. What does that mean? Do I have relatives? Like, you know, I think like people are just trying to figure this out. Um, and that there's just been also a lot of institutional work in recognizing how central um, slavery was um, both to the United States, but also to modernity, like that movement, that transatlantic movement of enslaved bodies into plantations and then the wealth built from those resources that were, were immense. I mean, it, it fed the Industrial Revolution. It made people into millionaires. Um, and so the kind of recognition of the scope of slavery, you know, has been remarkable. And Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 project for the New York Times, um, really revealed that. But it also showed how much it challenges the mythologies that America was based on, you know, saying like, really, the American story starts in 1619 and not with independence in 1776. And, you know, there are a lot of folks who are like, no, that's heresy. That's not true. But, you know, Americans like to think that they're exceptional. No, we're not. (laughs) There's nothing exceptional about us. Americans, you know, 
they, they, um, they have papered over the genocidal violence, I think, of how the nation was formed and also the violence of, of human ownership that also built the wealth to, to basically say, oh, but we were, we believed in equality. Well, no, you built institutions like the White House and the U.S. Capitol, you know, these institutions that are both symbolically about freedom, liberty, and justice, but you did it with enslaved labor on land dispossessed. And so America's just never reckoned with that disavowal of those values. So what Mabel seems to be saying there is that America has never really reconciled that troubled history. And because of that, it keeps manifesting in riots and protests. Yeah, of course. I mean, we're, we're in our lifetimes, we've seen so many occasions where it's flared up. Um, but this time, she also thinks that there's something changed. Um, the history of slavery and dispossession isn't news to anyone, but somehow something different is happening here. There was always resistance. I think um, even under slavery, people, there were rebellions. I mean, that was the thing that Jefferson was terrified of, was the rebellion of enslaved populations. He said something like, you know, 10,000 memories, like people would remember because to make someone a slave requires an extraordinary amount of violence. Um, and so there were um, always kinds of histories of protest um, around that, you know, in, in various ways in, in cities, you know, in the, you know, there were a series of uprisings and you know, full-on race riots in the 1920s during a pandemic, you know, after the 1919 pandemic. Uh, then you have the 60s. Um, and then, you know, today, you know, you have another kind of round of that. And I think, you know, what's remarkable now is the scale and scope of those things, precisely because of social media, that they're happening, you know, we're having in all parts of the United States, from Nebraska to New York City, but then you see them in Berlin. And you, I mean, you see these kind of solidarity protests, but also protesting their own legacies, colonial legacies um, and racist legacies. So I think it's a kind of remarkable global awakening of that legacy of colonialism. Because that's, I mean, that's really where it's all coming from. When Mabel was out in Melbourne, she spoke a lot about the removal of Confederate statues from all over the American South. It was only a year and a half prior to her visit here that we'd had the Charlottesville white supremacist rally and subsequent riot. We spoke briefly with her again about this issue. How could you lose a war and then build monuments to your heroes? You know, and it's often called the lost cause. Like all of these monuments were the daughters of the Confederacy, United Daughters of the Confederacy, so that they can honor their husbands and their sons who fought valiantly, right, for the cause. And I would say the cause wasn't lost. The cause was recalibrated and that the Confederates didn't put those up. Americans put those up. So my question is always like, how do we understand these as a set of American values that weren't lost, that were kept alive, right? I mean, these are Americans who put all this stuff up. Confederacy was over. And so what does this say about our fundamental American values that clearly can absorb a set of white supremacist values that were blatant about, you know, what that war was about? And so it says how deeply ingrained this already is in our American discourse. And that's why people don't want to talk about it, because they don't want to own that truth. So the monuments are obviously the visible symbols of that racist history, but... This issue is also about the day-to-day -day harassment 
of people being handcuffed for just hanging around in a cafe or a park. We asked her if there was something in these protests that's just, in a really simple way, about reclaiming the streets, reclaiming a right to free movement. Yeah, no, I I think the word reclamation is a really good one because I do think, you know, that the role of the police, I mean, you have to think, you know, like what is the role of police in terms of maintaining order, enforcement, right, of the law. But, you know, certainly in the United States, the legacy of policing has to do with slave patrols, for example, right, to control. And it, it wasn't because they were about slaves. It was about property. It's like your property ran away and you've got to get your property back. So a lot of policing is also about maintaining maintaining an environment where property value can be stabilized, you know, and, and complicit with that was planning, for example, and the ways in which cities are zoned about who can live where, uh, certainly in the United States, redlining maps where banks and realtors produced sets of maps that basically said these areas are poor, these are people of color, they're immigrants, you know, they're grade C and D, not desirable. You know, grade A land, which, you know, would be colored green. Oh, this is great. These are wealthy people, most likely white. This is good. And literally, it gets baked into the ways in which neighborhoods are settled. And therefore, you have to maintain distance between grade A and grade D. And often policing is the way you do that. There's a whole other host of um, societal structures that also keep people impoverished and keep them vulnerable. But certainly the police is that. And it also kept people from getting getting loans. If you were black and you were living in D, you could get a loan to buy property there. It didn't allow you to basically build wealth. And so, you know, people are reclaiming it precisely because they've been excluded from it. So clearly, Mabel believes that the way we design our cities is contributing to inequality. She's an architect. Does she think the profession is lifting its game here or is even aware of the fact there's a problem? Well, what was interesting in talking to her, in fact, was just reflecting on our own situation here in Australia. And it is true. I mean, we have big problems, of course, uh, in this in this area. But at the same time, there's a lot of new big projects where clients are looking to engage in some way with traditional owners. And architecture practices are slowly kind of getting to grips with that. There is, I think, some movement in Australia, and hopefully it's getting better. But I'm not sure Mabel thinks the same is true in America. A lot of these questions have been worked out elsewhere and just have been very slow. And I think this has a lot to do with, um, you know, architecture just as a profession, its relationship to power and money, who builds, who owns land, who runs the bank, who can become a professional, who can then have access to that. But also, I think architects are very um, utopian-minded. We live in the speculative. We make projects into the future. We always want to envision the world will be better by the work that we do. And so I think by by nature, we always think we're doing good when sometimes actually it's, it's not so good. So there's an election coming up in the States. I think you'd have to be blind Freddy not to know that. Um, and we all hope it would happen sooner. A lot of talk in that election cycle is about building back better. That's largely framed by environmental issues and the new Green Deal, etc. But maybe there's an opportunity to bring racial issues into the frame. I asked Mabel what change she'd like to see. Well, I mean, it just you, you just sense the space. I mean, like on one part of the city, 
people don't have space. They don't have enough space to live or breathe, right? And that's where coronavirus was just rampant. These, you know, there were people who had to be out. They had to be working. Um, when they came home, they weren't living in big places. They were living in sprawling apartments. They had no access to health care, um, no access to good food, um, you know, lead, I mean, just horrible conditions that don't allow life to thrive. So people are packed together on one side. Of, and on the other side of the city, there are apartments that are sitting empty, like $20 million apartments, thousands and thousands of square feet, where now money is just being banked in space. I call them space deposit boxes, right? And those people who own them are who knows where, you know, half the city left. I mean, certainly Manhattan, everyone up sticks and they're in the Hamptons and the Catskills. And, and this is primarily what, you know, white New Yorkers are gone. And they left black and brown New Yorkers crammed in, the, in, in their neighborhoods in the city. And that is, that is the spectrum of inequality. And it's not by accident, it is by design. Australia has its own history of colonial dispossession. But the recognition and memorialisation of that history plays out differently here to the American South. A lot of Australia's most significant places are given Aboriginal names, often in honour of historical Indigenous figures. But obviously it's complicated territory, and to help us navigate that, we spoke with Finn Peterson and Sarah Lynn Rees, two people who regularly engage with these issues in their day-to-day work. Finn was one of the architects who worked on the recently opened Yagan Square in central Perth a project that embodies a lot of the challenges and opportunities of engaging with Aboriginal knowledge and history. And we've now had the sort of the privilege of working with Aboriginal people both from remote and regional areas, Western Australia, all the way through to um, more recently in, in the CBD with the Wajuk Working Party on Yagan Square and um, with the sort of Baladong people in, um, in Northern one of the interesting things, I suppose, of that is that there's such a diversity of people's culture and viewpoint and language groups and backgrounds and then the terrible overlay of colonialism and on top of that, the terrible overlay of um, stolen generation of actually the shaking up of people's um, culture from moving people out of their language groups and forcefully sort of mixing up people into different areas. So there's this incredible um, array of, of belief systems and diversity um, and as an architect, our role, I see our role as being just providing a very clear service of giving some skills to allow people to have good buildings, be they houses or infrastructure buildings or more simple buildings like schools or shelters. Finn's obviously really engaged in this area and doing great work, but he's probably not entirely indicative of the architecture profession overall. We spoke with Sarah Lynn Reese, a Palawa woman who is an advocate for bringing more Indigenous perspectives into the design of our cities. We asked her how well the architecture profession is doing in engaging and enabling Aboriginal approaches to place. If I could slightly turn that question around, I think the the thought experiment that I'm constantly going through is to think um, with all of our projects, what can we do that's a positive contribution to country if we can't engage? And what can we do if it's a positive contribution to country if we can engage? So in that context, you don't uh, eliminate any kind of typology or, um, you know, uh, creation of architecture because there's always something that can be done that 
works positively with country and that might just be looking up the you know the EVC the environmental vegetation class right of the area um to understand what the pre-1750 landscape would have been and so then if you're designing a domestic house for yourself you can start to understand what the environment would have been and therefore what's uh, how that collection of species would have supported a certain habitat and therefore you can create an environment for the habitat that would have been there um, pre-colonisation. The idea of bringing country to life by engaging traditional owners is clearly how Finn likes to work. And it makes a lot of sense when working on remote projects like housing or community infrastructure projects. But as Finn pointed out, it does get very complicated in the city with projects like Yagan Square where there are a lot more stakeholders involved. Yeah, I think I think it's more complicated in a in a way. Um, it, I mean, Yagan Square was awarded via expression of interest in a competition process um, done by the state government and um, a division called the Metropolitan Redevelopment Authority. We were um, part of a team with Lions and Aspect Studios and some artists that we actually engaged um, as part of our team, and, and we were shortlisted, and we luckily won the competition and then proceeded to work on Yagan Square. And at the time of the competition, Yagan Square was called City Square. It wasn't actually called Yagan Square. And um, just as we were awarded the competition, it was the then Premier then offered to the Wajak Working Party to call the um, the place, this this square, uh, it's kind of not really a square, but a place, <laughs> um, Yagan Square, after the Aboriginal leader Yagan, who was one of the core figures of the early colony. And he was an incredible figure, a really powerful leader who ended up being an outlaw because of uh, a series of encounters that ended up with payback killings and he was eventually assassinated by two young boys almost they were barely men for, for a bounty we had designed the the, the place very much as a landscape rather than as a building and we were really we were very sensitive to the idea of the, of the history of the site and of the colonial history of the site and also the pre-colonial history of the site and the the site's actually um, known not for Yagan because it's actually not Yagan's country. It's actually Balbuck's country, and Balbuck was this wonderful elder. She was in the very early years of the colony. She lived in Harrison Island in that area towards the east of Perth, and, and she would walk down along these former wetlands where Yagan Square is now located, um, hunting and gathering. And when um, the early colonists built houses and fences she would kick down fences and open people's front doors out and storm through the house swearing at people and walk out the back door so she was maintaining her paths of travel and her her, um you know her traditional ways of moving through country and she was i think actually admired a lot by the colonists because in the early papers there's all these little articles about her and when she finally died there was there was some genuine mourning and loss but um certainly when we first met with the wajak working party after we were awarded the contract we obviously couldn't engage with the wajak working party at the time of the design because it was a it was a closed design so you don't get the same level of engagement than if you start from a clean slate and you try and build a project up from ideas that are generated by the community so we had to look at ideas of history and place and memory and remembrance and all these things and, and build them into our design without you know strategically scaring off the, the judges <laughs> um, we'd, we'd backed a horse that this idea of perhaps a, a more traditional and more of an Aboriginal reading of land could be more appropriate for that urban environment than a traditional western land so we, we looked at this idea of tracks of moving through the country of wetlands of different ways of seeing the land and looking at the country through 
Aboriginal eyes, not looking at it through Western eyes. That had strong resonance when we presented the project to the Wajib Working Party. And a lot of what we were doing was really strongly endorsed by the group. They then fed into the ideas that we had started to generate and we tweaked and moved the ideas to actually incorporate those other cultural ideas and nuances into the project. It's funny, you know, we're so used to places being named after significant people in history that it doesn't even occur to us that this practice was pretty much a hallmark of colonial conquest. Melbourne was the Prime Minister of England when the colonisers laid claim to this land. Sydney was the then British Home Secretary. And Adelaide, of course, is named after the Queen. So in talking to Sarah, we wanted to explore a bit more about this business of new Australian public spaces being named after Aboriginal figures from the past. We asked her if it's common practice in Aboriginal cultures. No, it's not. And most places are named after some sort of prevalence of uh, flora or fauna in the landscape or some sort of experience or story that happened in that place Um, in the same way that, you know, birds are named after the sound that they make. Uh, A lot of the naming actually comes from the existence of that thing in a place. Um, And it's not about the story of an individual that that was written down. So the only reason we know about Benelong or Barangaroo or any of these Aboriginal figures, I don't, I don't know much about Yagan, but I'm assuming it's the same, correct me if I'm wrong, but someone from Western history wrote down their name and their story and that's why their stories have been told and other stories haven't been told. Um, it's an interesting difference, I guess, having an oral history versus a written history because it's the person who writes the history down that gets to determine what we talk about centuries later, um, which becomes very... Oh. Um, sort of complex because that might not be the essence of what that story should tell. I mean, a lot of Aboriginal stories that um, have been shared with me are more about the morals of place, about how to work with place, how to be sustainable and living on place. And it might be told through a narrative, but if you actually understand the story, you start to understand that you shouldn't um, fish for, or you shouldn't catch fish during spawning season or during when, you know, when this bird flies past, you know that it might rain in a couple of hours or that when you start to see this colour of the tree go this way, then the wombats are going to come out. Like there's there's all these different stories that tell you about the intricacies of working with country and working and um, aligning with the values of place rather than memorialising someone that existed in the past. It's a very different approach. I thought that point that Sarah makes about written history versus spoken history is really important. To Western eyes, we think that memorialising people written down in history is a way of showing respect. But what Sarah seems to be saying is what's important is country. That phrase Sarah used, the morals of place, which are handed down from person to person as spoken knowledge, is really profound. And of course, it raises a very particular question for architecture and how it's practised. Architects are used to working from a written brief. The design brief in any project normally is like a written story of what's important and it's the foundation stone upon which the architect starts to design. So where does an architect start, if not from a written brief? It's really, really important to sit and listen to people. Certainly one of the most sort of powerful consultancies that I had the privilege to work on was doing some housing out in the Great Victorian Desert, a Trunchenjara community. And the Trunchenjara people are the most southwest speakers of Pitjantjara, and they're sometimes called the Spinifex people, and they're the um, they're part of the Maralinga group who were displaced by the British nuclear testing in the 1950s. And when we started that process, we we were awarded the contract. I think because of a proposed consultancy framework, which was really about listening and 
And so for the first three days, we spent with the community interviewing all the families and um, individually and also collectively. It was sort of the first thing that the community did, the elders um, told us the story of the Maralinga testing and how they ended up where they did. And they told us about seeing the fallout, seeing the clouds from the nuclear blasts and the, and the black rain that had fallen after the, um, after the nuclear blasts and then spoke the stories about their, um, their relatives who gradually got sicker and sicker and started coughing up blood and died from radiation poisoning. And it was this kind of very, very sobering, powerful kind of rendition of why they were where they were um, and told in an incredibly gentle way. And um, so Trevor Jemison, um, the actor, was, is actually from Trinchinjara and, and he performed and helped write a piece called Napogee Napogee, which is a, the story of, of the British atomic testing. And those, those kind of first-person stories which are shared as a, they're, they're actually part of our common culture now where, we're, you know, it, it's something that we have to share in our journey and we have to both mourn and to and work out ways of working through that that story and those kind of events and acknowledge them. Um, it's the truth-telling process, really, that has to occur in societies if they are to move forward, whether that be, you know, black South Africa and apartheid or whether it be, um, you know, the terrible things that have happened in, in the Congo and other places in Africa. We, we, we are in a weird space that our so-called, you know, Western civilised first world nation is actually... Know, has an inherent amount of racism and post-colonial baggage that we have to work very hard at getting rid of because it's innate, innate in our society and our mental main frame, uh, mental makeup, both as individuals. And I think that translates at, to a corporate and a government level that we actually actively have to watch our minds and to uh, and to hunt down and eliminate this act of racism. That, that prevents people um, from living free lives and practising their culture. That imperative, the need to hunt down and eliminate the latent racism in our society, might be a good moment to raise the spectre of what some have dubbed cancel culture. At its most dramatic, this is associated with the toppling of statues, such as that of British slave owner Edward Colston, which happened in Bristol back in June. Here in Australia, there have been parallel conversations about the statues that memorialise the early colonisers. Governors, generals, explorers, etc. We were interested to know what Sarah thought about this debate and how we might resolve the problem of artefacts within our cities that reflect a time and values that we have hopefully moved on from. I mean, everyone's going to have their own personal perspective on this, but it comes back to how you define decolonisation and the way that I always view it is that it's not about overthrowing a dominant power, it's about creating space for a duality of experiences and cultural beliefs and practices and systems to exist. And so um, it might, in some cases, it might be about taking down the statue that exists, but in some cases it should be about creating something that balances that statue. But what then does that become? And um, I think we've had this conversation before. But um the the idea that you would just erect another statue of an Indigenous person doesn't seem to work. And so what actually would be a memorial that's appropriate from an Indigenous context or would we even memorialise or do we, you know, how do we do that? And one of the things I quite like, one of the, um, I guess, perspectives on that is that if you stick up a statue, it sits there for a million years and it gets bird poop on it and, you know, someone comes along with a high-pressure water hose and cleans it off every now and then, 
But actually, if you create an Indigenous landscape, you have to manage it, you have to actively tend to it, and you have to care for it. And so there's this active remembrance or active participation in the cultivation and the continuation of a landscape or an environment. You have to keep telling the stories, you have to keep tendering to the plants, whatever it may be, um, for it to be alive. And, and, you know, a stone is not alive in that sense. So I was going to say it's um, it's a little bit off topic, but it's not just um, memorials made of stone or bronze that bring up these sort of memories. So the the country, one of my ancestors is just south of Ben Lomond in Tasmania. Um, and that ancestral line uh you, it, a lot of that's privately owned now, so you can't actually go onto that land. Um, but there is a road on someone's property that you can go on to visit um, Batman's cottage. Uh, and so Batman has a cottage that exists on the country of my ancestors and his job at that point was a bounty hunter, so he probably killed a lot of my ancestors. And to me, nice. the fact that this is a thing that's been protected and that there's a right of access to visit this cottage on this country uh, is really that's deeply kind of upsetting to me. Um, and I don't know if I can really articulate it because it is such a private landscape now. I've only, um, have, you know, had the privilege of going there two or three times in my life. And I, like the fences disconnect me from place. And the, the fact that the only place I can go to on country is Batman's cottage is, um, a really, conf- like it's really difficult. Um, and so I kind of just circling back to what you were talking about before, the idea that we can open up spaces and we deprivatize things and we allow people to experience place other than in the controlled way that we have curated it through planning or through cadaster maps or whatever it might be allows us to have a deeper connection with place than just visiting the guy who probably killed a lot of your ancestors' home on the part of the country that you're allowed to go to. That is a very potent example of the ways in which colonial attitudes to land and place remain in sometimes subtle, if not invisible ways. We decided to end with a bit of a speculation about the future. Imagine we somehow, from now on, did everything right. We improved how we engaged with Aboriginal knowledge and culture. We took those lessons and applied them to our cities, and we were very proud of ourselves. Now spool forward a few decades... I wonder what the city would feel like. How would it be different? I always think about this in the context of how can traditional owners challenge us to design better on a wider scale. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing if we, in our, within our planning um, applications that we have to do for all the architecture buildings that we create, that there is, you know, some sort of challenge set by traditional owners that, you know, this year we've notified that we need to, you know, re-establish a certain population of these birds and therefore we need a certain number of these trees within this area because that's their habitat and every project that goes through planning needs to adhere to that in order to be awarded. I don't know. It's a thought experiment. But um, I guess overall for me, I would like to see the idea of engagement and the particularly the idea of procurement, so the front end of projects before they even hit our desk, be um, indigenised in a way that it's normal to engage with traditional owners before a project arrives at our desk. I think I've said this probably 10 times in public talks, but by the time a project hits our desk and we're undertaking an EOI, it's almost... We're, all, we're, we're almost on the back foot from the very beginning of trying to positively engage in a way that actually embeds cultural knowledge about place in a way that's actually 
um, beneficial. And the later we engage, the more about representation it becomes. And that becomes problematic because then we're, we're sort of adhering to this romanticised notion of what Indigenous knowledge is. Uh, it's, a, you know, about the representation of particular um, knowledge within culture, not about the function of that knowledge and how that knowledge can help us understand place better um, and how to tell us how to operate or the ethics of that knowledge and how that guides us in who we are as humans as a society. And so, I mean, that all sounds very fantastical, but those things exist. Okay. If you listen to traditional owners give welcomes to country, they tell you about the laws of the place that you're standing in and they tell you how to operate on that country. And if you can start to embed that and think about how to spatialise that in architecture so that we actually operate in alignment with the laws and values of country, that would be amazing. That's a world I'd love to see. Thanks for joining us. This is a Living Cities podcast brought to you by the Naomi Milgram Foundation. See you next time.